Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 82, Jamie 3 in a Storm of Swords, featuring, oh my god, I'm so excited about this, featuring fangirl Jean. I am one of your hosts, Chloe, you know me from the internet, Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarberGold.com. I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. You probably already know who I am, so enough about me. We have a guest. We have a guest today. It's fangirl Jean, <laughs> and I'm fangirling. It's fine. Oh my god, oh, wow. fangirl Eliana. <laughs> hey, um, I'm fangirl Jean. You can find me as fangirl Jean pretty much everywhere on the internet. I'm a writer and media critic and all-around loudmouth nerd. You know, you might know me from my recaps I used to do of the Game of Thrones show, and or just of me generally annoying fans of the book series by uh, <clears throat> being brutally honest about characters and canon. Yes. The ultimate canon choice to have on the Girls Gone Canon podcast. Like, Gina's here to go canon on us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Canon, putting canon <laughs> on ships? Canon's on ships? Oh, yes. Who do you think you are? You're on Greyjoy God. season 8. Those Settle weren't down. cannons. Those were crossbows. And I bet Jamie would have some opinions about that. <laughs> that was a good segue, Eliana. Thank You're really you. Good at this. I, I'm getting better. I'm getting better, I think. Just a little. Um, I do want to flag, though, for everyone, as we enter this episode of Jamie 3, uh, we are going to be talking about some issues of sexual assault and sexual violence and, you know, mutilation. Uh, so... That's not something you want to hear about. You know, feel free to join us again for a different episode. Yeah, another time. Another time. Uh, we haven't had that in a bit. It's been, what, since Theon. So everyone pony up, get, get you know, comfy. Maybe a hot cocoa. I don't know. Yes. And, you know, before then, we do have some, some announcements. We have, as we said last week, a giveaway for Ice and Fire Con. Yes, we want you to come hang out with us at Ice and Fire Con this year. It is the last weekend of April. It is in Mount Sterling, Ohio, in Deer Creek State Park. It is lovely and beautiful, and it's a place to go party in the woods with a bunch of nerds and talk about A Song of Ice and Fire and the show. And you don't have to talk about the show if you don't want to. I know most people don't want to anymore. Some people really do. You know, very few, very few. (laughs) It's like 35 minutes outside of Columbus, uh, a ton of our other friends are going to be there from the fandom, like Game of Owns, Scad from Davos Fingers, which I'm going to be on Davos Fingers soon. Oh. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't know that, did you? I didn't. Keeping secrets yeah. from me. Well, you know, Mistress of Whispers over here. Uh, we're going to talk about the world of Ice and Fire, the last 15 pages. Look it up. History of Westeros is going to be there. Radio Westeros. More people. So many people. There's so many fun events like tourneys. There's a tourney. Uh, a photo scavenger hunt, there's panels, there's content, and um, there's a couple panels we're actually on, I think, so we'll talk about those sometime in the future. But to get into the giveaway for a weekend pass, some free Girls Gone Cannon merch, and a drink on us at Ice and Fire Con, alcoholic. One each, one, e- one drink One drink each. each. I will buy you one, and Eliana will buy you one. Eliana, how can they enter this giveaway? How does it happen? Tell me. I'm going to do better this week, everyone. Please send us an email with a subject line that says favorite POV. Literally put the words favorite POV in your subject line. Please include a character that is your favorite POV. But even if you don't, um, just put that in your subject line. And give us a short blurb. Tell us why this is your favorite POV. 
characters slash chapters, right? And then you will be entered for a random drawing as much as we will appreciate everything that everyone sends to us, but we do not want to... I don't feel like judging. All right, I just don't. Um, and then we are this closing... This is a safe place. <laughs> yes, exactly. We are closing submissions March 1st. And we will announce March 13th, the day before Pi Day. Thank you very much to our mysterious benefactor, Illyrio Mopatis. Yes, Illyrio. And you know what? This isn't your only chance. I think that Radio Westeros, at the very least, a couple of other folks are also... So have some other mysterious patrons, you know, maybe Yezen Zokogaz or something, right? I think Kages, it's really Kages, Illyrio sorry. just not putting all of his dragon eggs in one basket, Eliana. Smart. Smart, yes. Uh, and like the very real Illyrio, so very interesting. Yeah. Jean, who's your uh, favorite POV? Oh, God, you're making me choose? Oh, you can. Uh, okay, one. I'll give you three. I'll give you three to five. No, three no, five, no, no, no. It has to generous. be one. The choosing has always been the hardest. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You gotta hurt me. Um, uh, I'll just... Uh, uh, okay, right now, today, my mood... That's allowed. I'm gonna say... I'm gonna say Sansa. I'm just gonna stick with it. Oh, yeah. That was a good choice, though. That's... They're all good choices. There isn't a bad POV to pick. Like, there's not a wrong you, answer you, to this, right? There's not a wrong y- answer. Yes, They're it's all, Chet. I mean, well, they all got stuff to offer. You know, I even respect Victorian stands. Seriously, I like bricks. I mean, oh yeah, buttered okay. toast. <laughs> Whatever. Ducks. Yeah, sometimes. D- did you say ducks? I mean, I'm just equating things to Victorian's intelligence. Oh, okay. I was like, why would you do <laughs> ducks, ducks dirty like that? Th- that was generous. You're no, right. No, that was really rude to I'm... ducks. <clears throat> Don't be mean to ducks. <laughs> no. Quack. God. Quack, quack. <laughs> uh, well, Eliana, are you going to face your shame and tell everybody why you're sorry? Because you're leaving? Yeah. I'm, you're leaving I'm like, am I sorry? I don't know. Sorry. Not <gasps> sorry? <gasps> Um, I'm, I'm leaving for good. No, no, not for good. Just for a few weeks. <laughs> I'm leaving for a fortnight. Chloe was like, what the hell? Jean, you got to take over. This is your podcast now. Um, just abandoning you and leaving you in charge. I just got drafted. Thing. I know. I'm like, I am. The wall is yours. Jean Snow. And. Oh my God. Uh, my watch is now begun. <laughs> surprise. Maybe it'll be Jean, maybe not. Chloe's going to replace me, and by that I mean with guess, Not guess. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, Allie? <laughs> Allie? Jake? The cats? Jaharis and Alisan? No, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, no, Faye from Her Dark Materials and Amy and Ian from the Dark Material podcast are actually joining me for a podcast for our patron episode this month, which is going to also be shared with the public eventually. Uh, the patron episode will air by the end of February for patrons only, $5 and up. And then, of course, and that will air for the public on March 6th as well. Uh, so we will share this month. We'll be in the spirit of giving this month while Eliana steps out on us. Yes, we'll have the Dark Material podcast and half of her Dark Materials on, and we are going to discuss the secret commonwealth. More of a broad discussion and just a general conversation. Faye is about to finish it. Amy and Ian uh, have finished it recently and read it a bit, so we'll get some good insight, some introspect, you know, just a general discussion. Can't cheat on Eliana too hard. 
I mean, it, it would only be right after what I'm doing to you, after what I'm doing to all yes. of all of our listeners. It's like, <sighs> I is it this. my fault that you're leaving? It's not. It's not. I'm sorry. I just got to do it for me. Do it for yourself. Maybe one day we will have a discussion about the secret commonwealth because guess what? I finally finished the beautiful sausage. <laughs> La Belle Sauvage. How, how, okay, no, no details, but just like thumbs up, thumbs down. How was it? It was very good. Thumbs up, thumbs up. Okay, good. Well, we will definitely talk about that in detail. I don't know. Maybe that'll be a future patron episode. We'll see. Maybe it'll be a future public episode, but uh, I'm very happy you finished it. Thank you for doing this for me. <laughs> I will do this thing for you. I won't put any pressure on you for the next one. You can do this on your trip. You can uh, not do it, you know, maybe for a year. we'll do another month or two and then I will put pressure on you then. Whatever. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no big. In that time being, uh, until that patron episode comes out, we have this episode and then on March 6th, you'll get that patron episode going public for the public, 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 public. And then Eliana will come back the next week and on the 13th, we will announce the winner for the Ice and Firecon giveaway, and we will jump into Jamie 4. So buckle up. We're going to dive into some emails of note into our lightning round, and then we are going to get some really awesome insight from our friend Jean here. Moving on to our emails of note, we did get a message from Rita, one of our patrons. Hey, Rita. Rita said, I've been an avid listener for a while. Love the perspective that you bring to Aeswath. I want to ask, do you think Jamie would have killed Ares if it had been anyone else outside the city gates? We know Jamie was mostly spurred to action by the revelation Ares planned on nuking the city, but he also talks about his struggle with the demand he bring Ares his father's head. We have reason to question that Ares would have stopped with Tywin. If it had been like Ned Stark's or Robert Baratheon's hosts outside the city, do you think anything would have turned out differently? Ooh, that's a really good question. Especially because, yes, it was to stop Ares from burning the city, but, you know, Ares did just say, you should kill your dad or else I'll kill you. And also, you know, there's a little pride. Like, he finally realized, huh, Ares really did that shit to my family and me. Hmm. I don't, you guys brought something up in the episode for Jamie 1 about how, you know, George presents has presented before, like, Jamie's motivations as kind of complex and, like, throwing Bran out the window to defend his children and that kind of stuff. But I don't see, especially Jamie at the during the Ares era age, putting a lot of thought into anything. I think what we're seeing in his reflections and memories is a dude who's had years and especially a year in a dungeon to think about everything he's done and why, and to justify all of his bad choices and to be resentful and stew and stew. But I really see a lot of the choices, um, you know, <clears throat> of, of, you know, getting knighted young and, and agreeing, you know, to get the, you know, to get steady sister booty by agreeing to be uh, a Kingsguard. Almost all of those choices really feel like they're impulses. Like, and I think that I don't think that, you know, I mean, I definitely think that he was probably relieved when he heard that his father was at the gates and he probably is really conflicted about, um, you know, being told to co-kill his dad. But I don't think that he put a lot of thought. I don't think Jamie put a lot of thought into anything he did until he was, you know, captured yeah. and put in a right. Like I mean, he's never yeah. had to because because yeah. Tyrion's the thinker and Cersei has always been the top. 
And oh, so, so I think out. that. <laughs> Go ahead. <Sorry. clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, I think that, uh, like, I think that he has, even with his, you know, his rationalization when he talks to, you know, later in the tubs with Brienne and talking about, you know, what happened. Um, I think that's all a, an adult's reflection on justifying mm. his choices. But I, Jamie's so much about him, especially the aspect of him that's a fighter, is all about trusting his instincts and living in the moment. And that's where he's most comfortable. That's where he's most himself. And that's where I feel with stuff like this. It's better to just go with, he did it because he wanted to do it at that moment. That that just was the thing, just like sitting on the throne. It was the thing to do in the moment. I think that's some really good context to put around it. I mean, yeah, it's always worth remembering. We're starting Jamie's POV in the middle of the book series and in the middle of his life, right? It's not the same as with Mm -hmm. a lot of the Stark children. It's, It's the beginning of their lives. Even Theon, you know, he's young. And Theon was doing that too. He's just like, I don't know. I'm just gonna do it. And to be fair to all of them... I mean, ki- the killing of the people, not 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 super fair, but maybe for Ares. Uh, but I wasn't putting that much thought into my life decisions at that age either. Right, exactly. Yeah. Teenage me was a dingus. Oh, Les was riding on so me. So pretty. Les was on my not shoulders. So <laughs> yeah. oh, I, get, I say the same about 17. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um... <laughs> A lot also wasn't riding on him, like his sister, you know? Mm. Oh, that reminds me. Right. As you said, you know, Cersei was a top. Someone tweeted us today or yesterday with a reminder of, I think we have said before that Jamie is a bottom on this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Quite obviously. I don't think anyone needs to, you know, tweet it. It's just like a thing. It's canon. It's, It's just known in the universe. Right. I've been hyperbolic about it before, but like... Especially in the first times that we meet him when he's kind of like circling Ned and, and, you know, kind of negotiating the other characters in moments. It really is just like, please, someone step on my throat. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, yeah. And that's maybe what happens in this chapter. Um, Regarding this message, I do think Jamie would have still done it on a meta narrative level. Like, obviously, it was going to happen but like we see jamie's memories right we see that it's like this ramping up progression and i think it's kind of the same that we see how for john the narrative just gives him all of these tests like okay like what is going to make his character break what what's going to make you break your oaths right we we discuss all the different ways that john is tested i think for jamie it's kind of like that you know they're like it asks well would you break your oaths when you saw this unjust thing with a father and son being burnt no okay how about with rayella being like assaulted right no uh what about when it's your own family and the king's asking you to behead your own family still not then and it's finally i think enough for jamie to a like maybe he didn't think about it that much but like with the city at stake he's like no this is it this is where i draw the line and he ends up paying the price for it with with his honor his reputation john pays the price obviously too because he announced it to an entire room of people who were against him uh and neither of them get away with it they they both sort of suffer a death, John very literally, for Jamie. I think it's his identity. He stops being Jamie the Kingsguard, like the precocious prodigy white knight, and it becomes the Kingslayer. Well, and it is kind of in in um in line with the way that George flips cliches or favorite tropes mm-hmm. about, you know, our ideas, our myth making about when you do the right thing 
you get rewarded for doing the right thing. And in this world and in the real world, when you do the right thing, often you don't get a reward. You don't get, you know, heralded for doing it. Often it ends up being a a terrible thing that ruins your life. And I think great pointing out John for sure. I do. I definitely see that we see a reflection of, of this young men or young boys being the position of men making huge choices and fucking up, or even when they do the right thing, it ends up scarring them for life and, or ending their life. And I think that that's, there's definitely some echoing happening again with Jamie and John. Oh, so many things to talk about those two, but I'll, I won't, I'll pull back on that for now. <clears throat> so many podcasts, they make you talk and talk. <laughs> Oh, it's always good every time, <laughs> you know. The the joke lands every time. Yeah, every time. Like it works for every single scenario. Everyone, uh, uh, there are no podcasts like ours. Only ours. Oh my god! Actually, we don't know <sighs> about that. Um, I mean, so anyways, so we got a message from our friend Lo. We talk about Lo. We talk about them constantly. Some days we're like, Lo, we wish you would just run the podcast because you're smarter. But <laughs> don't tell Lo that we said that, though. Uh, don't tell any of our fans we said that. Maybe that's who's going to replace me. Anyway. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. So Lo sent us uh, some great thoughts uh, expanding on Brienne and the performance of gender uh, in the discussion last episode. Lo said, you mentioned how you could read Brienne maybe as non-binary or genderqueer or just as a woman who doesn't fit the expectations set by society. Um, I'm not sure how I read her, to be honest, but I can see the arguments in either directions. And Lo, of course, is someone who is an expert and does a lot of work in gender studies and also is genderqueer. So Lo says, you mentioned in the episode that it seems like Brienne doesn't exactly dislike her body since it allows her to do what she wants to do, fighting, etc. I think that the idea that trans or non-binary people dislike their body is sometimes exaggerated. This is, of course, true for some people, but Other people would rather describe it as disliking how society perceives their body. If I might use myself as an example, I don't dislike my body, but it makes me uncomfortable that people assume that I'm a woman based on my body. Some trans and non-binary people want to change their body because of this this discomfort, others don't. But the narrative that trans people hate their body is oversimplified and might actually do damage. And Lo actually links an article here, and uh, we can link that as well for people to look into it. And then Lo likens it to their own experiences of being a genderqueer person, similar to how Brienne, um, who feels similarly in many ways to Brienne, and how people assume that based on her biology, she must personify certain traits and behave in certain ways. People who do identify as women can also feel like this. So I don't know how Brienne identifies. I think it remains somewhat unclear. She doesn't conform to gender norms, and that means that she has to put up with a lot of shit, regardless of how she actually identifies. And also says, P.S. Please pet the cats for me, Chloe. That's an important part of the message. Lo also sent a follow-up with images of their own cats, so. Yes, Lo is like my cat mate from across the the area here they uh they actually asked me some questions about the cats on the podcast a couple weeks ago on our twitter saying like oh what are they like uh, in real life and i do want to tell you guys at a lighter note that these cats are 1.5 year old kittens that keep me up forever um Allie is super friendly and social and lovely she has a little baby chub 
just like her mom, yes. and uh, a cute gray stripe on her chin. And she likes to put her toys in her water bowl for safekeeping. Yup, she thinks no one will go there and get those toys and find them. And then she likes to burrow beneath things. And then Jaharis is bad. He's ill-behaved. He misbehaves all the time. He climbs everything. He claws things. He wants to play. He gets the mail. Very weird. He it's likes amazing. to play fetch. It is amazing. <laughs> it should be viral, honestly. Uh, sometimes he's so affectionate, I can't even think straight. He's very sweet. But they're the best cats. Everyone should meet them. You should meet them. You'll love them. All of you should. I'm and a fan. used to be so, so shy. Jean, do you have cats? Any animals you would like to discuss? Yes, I have uh, Sif and Sansa. And so, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and uh, Sansa oh. is two years old. Two years old. And oh. Sif is 13, 14 now. She's a oh. rescue. They're both rescues. And, they, you know, as two females... Um, they, I, I don't know what it is about female cats, but, um, I found this to be true and, and they're confirming it, that they grudgingly accept each other's presence, but there has been no like official establishment of dominance, but it's always in flux. I just, yeah, coming back to Lo's message, I, I absolutely agree with everything that Lo is saying and I, I really appreciate this message. Lo always has great insights. Um, and we actually plugged one of their Twitter th threads last episode, and we'll talk a little bit about that again. And yeah, about Brienne, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm sorry if I misrepresented anything. I do agree that, you know, it's because of Brienne's body and the narratives that society imposes on Brienne, like as, as Lo was saying, it, it seems more as though Brienne dislikes how she's treated because of it. I don't know. But we'll discuss it more. I, I need to refresh on how Brienne thinks about her body. And it's less to do, you know, with whether or not she dislikes it so much as the way, again, society has abused her for failing to conform. We see it so much with, like, her quote-unquote suitors. And Heil Hunt's going to play a big role in how we discuss that later on. And as of right now, I think part of how Brienne differs from Jamie, like, this, this made me think, is, like, that she internalizes the way that society views her and that hatred and kind of turns it inwards towards herself, whereas Jamie turns it outward. And that's a lot mm. of the way that Jamie pokes at Brienne of like, oh, I can't believe you think this thing, this thing about honor. And, and is trying to get Brienne to do that. And there's a part of me that thinks like, mm, maybe maybe not for the parts about knighthood and the like good values that are in society, right? But mm. maybe Brienne could be better off with a little more outward anger at society and could learn a bit from Jamie on that front. It's almost like they change <laughs> each other. Wow, what? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> they evolve together. Wait, wait, aren't there Pokemon that... Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> I was going to say, they like, you put them next to each other and morph them into one like an Animorph. Oh, no. no, no, oh, the Digimon. The later Digimon stages. Wait, is this Brainy? Oh, my God. <laughs> we always run into this problem when we're talking about a text that obviously came from a person and their perspective. And I think yeah. one of the great things that George did is he, you know, that a lot of other people in the genre don't do um, or haven't done in, in the past is think about how gender informs a person and in his characters. It was one of the reasons I love his work is because 
you know, women don't just exist when dudes are in the room. They exist outside of the men in their lives. And, and he put, he, he seemed to have put a lot of thought into how they, you know, how do they live and react to the world around them. And I, but I do think that there is, you know, a limitation that can come from um, a cis writer um, kind of talking about, something you know he's only seeing maybe like one spectrum of light and then there's a whole other spectrum mm-hmm. that we that he doesn't see so he's not really addressing so it's difficult to kind of you know talk about ultraviolet range stuff when we're only seeing mm-hmm. you know just one range of light when it comes to gender in the story i do think that he definitely we, he plays at the edges when it comes to like Brienne and even Arya and even yeah. to some extent uh, Cersei and the way that hmm. her own view of her gender is almost as an other that in so many ways she kind of mm-hmm. views her body as a tool and, and which isn't necessarily, you know, I'm not saying that that's a trans narrative per se. I'm saying that that much like Lowe points out is that that the cis women deal with that as well. That these are different ways that yeah. women kind of negotiate living in this oppressive, violent patriarchy that is Westeros. Um, and I think what's actually kind of um, the thing that I like about Brienne um, is that for gender, like a great example is that gender isn't really a thing except when other people are putting it on her. So exactly. we don't really, she like you said, she doesn't really have kind of like any like deep internal struggle about whether she's a woman or not. Like, it's just a thing. It's all these other dudes that put her in dresses or talk about her tits and say that she can't be a knight. And it is interesting how much Jamie's view of her and her gender is informed by Cersei. And how we yeah. learn a lot about how what how Cer- Cersei, excuse me, cat, sorry again. Um, we see a lot of uh, in a lot of insight into how Cersei views her own femininity, and her and resents her body and her femininity through the way that Jamie put, projects what he thinks is really upsetting Brienne, opposed to what the fact that he's just an annoying fuck. <laughs> Pointing that out um, and the different how a lot of different women and and characters interpret their gender in the story. It is interesting that some of the first impressions we ever get of Brienne is through Catelyn, a cis woman who absolutely embraces her gender roles and being what what a Westerosi society says a woman should be. Yes, yes. And then that we get that beautiful perspective through Catelyn's eye of Brienne and thinking of Arya and 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 yeah. the duality of like of seeing all of Catelyn's like love, but also fear of having a daughter like that. Mm. And I, I could go on a long tangent about, about Catelyn's fear around how much Ned indulged Arya, but that's another time. (laughs) But yes, yes. Let's hop into our lightning round. We've got lots to explore with Jean today. Woohoo. Yes. So we'll kick it off with Tyrion 2. Tyrion learns who is bankrolling some of his obstacles in King's Landing. He plans to send Shay away. <gasps> plans. Priming. Plans within point. plans. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong canon. <laughs> Arya 2. Arya and company come across a brotherhood 
of men at the inn of the kneeling man, and the men take their horses for three golden dragons. Arya recognizes one of the men with them. It's Harwin. Catelyn 2. Edmure goes against battle plans, but Rob does a little bit of projecting in the face of his own mistake, coming home with a not-fray wife. I mean, on one hand. Yeah, I mean, you know, I get it, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. John, too. John spends the night in Egret's bed. (laughs) Where'd you go out? Sansa, too. Sansa is fit for a new, but dastardly, gown. Dantos tells Sansa that she should distrust the Tyrells. Arya, three. Harwin tells the tale of the trapped Tywin. Oh, sorry. Arya, three. Harwin tells the tale of the trap Tywin had laid for Eddard. Originally, and how the Brotherhood came to be. They plan to take Arya to Lord Beric. The Lightning Lord. Sorry. I'm sorry, it just sounds like. <laughs> I love him so like, much. The Thunder Down Under. Sorry. Oh. Talk about that Thunder <laughs> Dick. What? The Lightning Lord. I mean, that's what Lord I think of. Yeah, for real, though. Any man that survives that much death, I'm just saying. Samuel 1. Sam slays another. To protect him and his brothers. Tyrion 3. A seemingly long and tedious small council session is suddenly kicked back to life when Tyrion learns who he gets to marry. Spoiler alert, it's the same person getting a new gown. Catelyn 3. Furious at the Kingslayer's freedom, Rickard Karstark kind of loses his head. Insert the Arrested Development theme. Sorry. Oh, man. Are we allowed to put that in? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean... And that brings us to Jamie 3, a maiden in a knight's spar, but the knight loses more than his honor. It's his virginity, but not. Sorry. <laughs> no, actually, it's his hand, but... Yeah, it's his hand. It's his hand. Yeah. Remember, warning, there will be brutality at the very <laughs> end here. Yikes. And there's also going to be some really big sexual tension. So don't put this on uh, your speakers at work. Maybe just keep it to the headphones, guys. Before we start off in this episode, I love that there's this little three-chapter rush, right? Tyrion 2 ends with Jane's honeypot status basically being revealed if you watch Tywin. If you watch how he responds to Tyrion's questions and his non-answers, you realize Jane Westerling is kind of a honeypot. Uh, The first time you read it, you don't realize that until you get through it all. And then the second time you're like, oh, I'm so stupid. Why didn't I realize it? But Catelyn 2, we then see Jane up close. We hear about the herbs and teas her mother is giving her. And then in Jamie, not in this chapter, but far, far later, Jamie is the next chapter here, Jamie 3. But far, far later, Jamie is, of course, he has the dealing with Sybil. So George has this really great sense of weaving these characters and these plots together near each other throughout these next couple books. And I really love it. And I thought it was worth it to highlight it and point it out today. Yes. Um, I'm excited for when we get to those exchanges. Jean, did you want to talk about this? um, Or did you want to bring this in somewhere else, this side point that you have here? Yeah, no, I wanted to say because it's always kind of a thing. I mean, been in the fandom for 
a while now. And there's always a lot of discussion about um, Jamie and Cersei's relationship and about whether it's love, whether it's not love, is it abuse and who's the actual abuser. And um, I think, I think that actually George does a really good job of making it very complex and kind of showing that a, it's not healthy. Um, it is love in as far as these two extremely damaged, neglected children knew what love was. And so, and I think that there's a huge factor in both their relationship and how they see love. And I, the best way that I can sum up and you'll see, we'll see it as we go through the chapter, especially as, uh, in how Jamie interacts with everyone um, and how he views the world as kind of things that he can get what he wants and is my old my old internal note that has always been the Lannisters are capitalism and you can really like insert a whole thing about parasite in there as far as like everything is transactional for Lannisters um, and this is always a um, an underlying um, weakness for all of them in that they they really do feel that they can buy anything with their gold um, and that's each one of them from Tyrion to Cersei even to Tywin and Jaime they view everything kind of transactional and that's one of the ways to really kind of look at, at Jaime and Cersei's relationship in that they may see of see it as narcissistic love, you know, loving themselves and loving each other, but there is a transaction to it. And you see it a lot. Um, I was going to mention again about um, you guys talking in, about Jamie one about how his whole focus um, when uh, watching Robert drunkenly get into the wheelhouse with, uh, with Cersei, which is marital rape was not about, Oh, is Cersei okay? This must be horrible. It is I should be getting some and that 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 frames the that frames the tone of what their actual relationship is as far as how sex has worked as a transaction between them and in their discussion and and argument about throwing Bran out the window again you saw the whole conversation was us a, a kind of sword fight was well you fucked up because we could have fixed it this way well it doesn't matter because I'll just kill everybody anyway well you know back and forth and back and forth until he fucks her and essentially wins the the, the fight and that that everything is transactional and kind of combatant with all of them and that that really kind of embodies how Jamie views sexual and romantic in all relationships and i think that's true of cersei and we'll probably discuss that more when we get to cersei's chapters but i, I think that's such a good point that i haven't really thought about of how they their entire family sees relationships through that yeah lens. and you see like especially when jamie's yeah. interacting with with you see it in his internal monologue with with brienne about like if she's rude to him, well, I'll be rude back to her and I would be nice to them. And, and even the humor of I'll let, I'll give them back the girls because they won't expect it. Cause I'm giving them something for free. Cause it'll be funny. Own the libs. Own the libs <laughs> right, right? Oh, you edgelord. <laughs> fuck. Yeah. So, you know, last episode, we actually also talked a lot about how, uh, JB and the Lannisters in general, mm-hmm. it's a mob family, you know, and that's the only love they had. And that was a mob family and the life was being a Lannister. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, later on about identity and his relation to the Kingsguard. And when he finds out the Kingsguard is bullshit, where that identity goes, it goes nowhere. Uh, He had to absorb the Lannister identity. That's all he had left was daddy's money. Mm. And 
it's left him uh, kind of a, a little hollow in some areas, and we're working at it. We're building it up. So we'll start building it up on the King's Road. The King's Road is littered with destruction, burnt trees, bridges, fields. Heavy rain has kept the water level high, and at night, wolves are howling. Wolves are howling. I did this last episode. Why can't I say howling anymore? At night, wolves are howling, but they see no people. Half the homes have been smashed and burnt, and only feral dogs slink through the night. By the way, dogs? Anyone? Clegane reference anyone this early in the chapter? Ow. Oh. Dogs go dogs. Oh. I, dogs. I just was surprised by that. Yeah. So soon. Also soon. Coming upon Maidenpool, where the red salmon flies. They see the... The, the, the in fact, Maidenpool, where Florian <laughs> the Fool had first, quote-unquote, glimpsed Jacques while bathing with her sisters. Uh, and, you know, there's not so much of that now, though. There's just, like, dead bodies floating in the water. Human soup is never attractive. It's like when you when you make it sound like that. I mean, maybe it could be. I mean, what, I, I, there's just like no season. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> you know you're gonna. We'll get to we'll get to that with brand brand chapters. Brand. Oh yes, and I was gonna comment about um. In, it repeats its uh this pattern throughout the chapter. Um, and honestly, all of Jamie's POV is that he always seems to like to find the ugly side of everything beautiful, and it's almost like a he's just got a dunk on all of it. And I, you really see that um, um, reflected in, you know, like this of that. He's like, Oh, look, it's the maiden pool clogged up with corpses. Nark. <laughs> but, um, and which explains also why he just can't stop like picking at Brienne because she, she doesn't show. And like, I mean, obviously she is, you know, you know, physically ugly to him, but, um, but she doesn't like show that she's a liar or, you know, any of the things that everybody else is like. And we'll, you know, obviously we'll get into that more into the chapter, but. Yeah. If I don't get to have fun right. at night, why should you? God. He even, that. so he breaks out in song. He's being mighty jolly here. He's singing six maids. There were at a spring fed pool. And, all of this bits of the passage really brings to mind a lot of stuff. Uh, some stuff that's recently been written in Fire and Blood Part 1, like Jean-Quil Dark and Alisanne Targaryen in Light of Brienne, especially since they are about to go through Duskendale in just a bit. Uh, from Fire and Blood, The town of Maidenpool was far famed for the Sweetwater Pool where legend had it that Florian the Fool had first glimpsed Jean-Quil, bathing during the Age of Heroes. So women only were allowed within this pool... In Fire and Blood, Alisande Targaryen goes to Maidenpool, and she is attacked by women who do not wish for her to ruin their holy Maidenpool water with her demon Targaryen incest belly spawn. I guess I understand. Uh, because she is in a no-dudes-allowed pool, her shields almost don't make it in time to save her. They send for Jeanquil Dark, the bastard daughter of Lord Darkland, to escort her where no men can go from now on. Uh, there's passage from Fire and Blood. A raven flew to Duskendale that very night, commanding the new Lord Darkland to send to court his half-bastard sister, Jonquil Dark, who had thrilled the small folk during the war for the White Cloaks, the mystery knight known as the Serpent in Scarlet. She arrived at King's Landing a few days later and accepted appointment as the Queen's own sworn shield. I think it's safe to say George is playing with Jamie and Brienne as a reflection of this Florian and Jonquil setup, 
while Jamie's not obviously Florian or Jean-Quil to the eye. Good looking, nice armor, highborn. He still fits some of the premise. Jamie has a famous sword in Brienne 1 in A Feast for Crows. Uh, she thinks of the stories she was told by her nurse, and Florian the Fool is one of them who had a famous sword, she thinks. And of course, you get from the Hedge Knight, which we've talked about Brienne's connection with Duncan Egg and the Hedge Knight, where Jean Quill and Florian in the puppet play are uh, flirting. And Jean Quill says, you are no knight. I know you. You are Florian the Fool. And he says, I am, my lady, as great a fool as ever lived and as great a knight as well. A fool and a knight? I have never heard of such a thing. Sweet lady, all men are fools and all men are knights where women are concerned. And of course, the bathhouse of Harrenhal is a great comparison to the Pool of Maidens, where Brienne saves Jaime in the pools while giving him his name back. That's a great connection back to uh, the bathhouse, which we'll get to in a bit. It's going to be exciting. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, George has been playing with a lot of different, I think, incarnations of Brienne and Jaime throughout history, as you pointed out with Jonquil and Florian, also with Rohan and Dunk. Yes, and, and ideas of um, the pools is really interesting, especially the linking between the purity of the pool and the ideas of purity around maidenhood and virginity, mm. which, you know, I think that that's an interesting play as well, especially as we get on further when it comes to like Brienne and um, and her maidenhood and and all that. It's definitely like a rebirthing for Jamie too, which we'll obviously talk about someday when we let him be reborn in those mm. baths. But it's a big rebirth kind of thing. Yes. It's very interesting. I do love that Brienne in this scene is having like none of Jamie singing. She's like, shut the fuck up, Kingslayer. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's just an annoying little mouthy shit <gasps> that won't stop fucking with her. And I think he loves that she's just like, shut the fuck up. You know, I mean, she doesn't swear, but she just doesn't put up with his shit and just like lashes out at him immediately and isn't like other women who would be like, you know, either quiet or demure um, opposed to like Cersei who would probably tell him to shut up too. He's got a type. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, he really does. And he's a bottom, oh. you know, yeah. Cleos is like, Yes, you should be quiet, Jamie, because we're passing through Lord Putin's lands. He's sworn to Riverin, and Jamie wonders, like, all right, well, whose enemies are they? And once again, you know, how would how would Brienne do against him in sword fighting? Sword fighting, sure, that's what you're thinking. He asks Brienne to unchain him, and uh, he calls her wench, of course, and she's like, it's. Brienne. The choice of wench specifically. Um, although he does say milady or something like that. Would you like to dance uh, milady or something like that later? But a wench is an interesting choice of words when you think about it, of the class of that. Much like dog. He's not mm -hmm. calling her bitch. But he is he is putting, He's her, putting below her below him. him. She is just another sword that serves the Lannisters. Or now they're serving, she's serving the Starks. But you know, yeah. Yeah, he, he doesn't want her to be on the same level or playing field, right? Like, Cersei is his equal. If he separates Brienne and puts mm -hmm. her there, she does not matter to him. Hmm. That is really interesting in the class aspect. Um, 
You know, it, it's also like Brienne, we only really begin to get her story as her own identity crisis begins. So like her being called wench throughout all this, like names are obviously such a big deal in this story. Uh, Jamie, that's why he keeps insisting on being like, you should call me Jamie instead of Kingslayer. She's like, hmm, no. And, and for Brienne to just constantly demand that he acknowledge her name and not use that class term against her. I don't know, it's significant because it makes me think of, like, Theon and her being like, no, this is my name, and Theon always being like, "You not always, but him at the end of Dance being like, you have to remember your name. So I, I, I just think it's really great that Brienne, throughout all of the Storm of Swords, she's steadfast and like, I'm, I'm Brienne. And it's only, like, later on in her POVs, when we finally get them, that she really begins to question her allegiance because those pools of loyalty become really like murky because she's like i guess i'm following jamie's orders but they're also technically sir catlin not sir they're also technically <laughs> lady catlin's orders i'm i'm getting confused uh orders um so yeah and you you two are going to talk about more about names in a bit but for now jamie's like ooh, maybe i'll wash you in maiden pool Again, thinking about Cersei in the same in the same time he's thinking about Brienne or talking to Brienne, and this is replicated throughout both chapter one and chapter two, where he's constantly kind of entangling them in his head. He's trying yeah. to get more entangled. That boy is a mess. He is a mess. Yeah. Uh, as they go through the burnt riverlands, Jamie once more thinks of Aerys, and they end up taking the Duskendale Road. And then Jamie thinks once more on Cersei. He could never bear to be long apart from his twin. Even as children, they would creep into each other's beds and sleep with their arms entwined, even in the womb. Long before his sister's flowering or the advent of his own manhood, they had seen mares and stallions in the fields and dogs and bitches in the kennels and played at doing the same. Once their mother's maid had caught them at it, he did not recall just what they had been doing, but whatever it was, it had horrified Lady Joanna. She'd sent the maid away, moved Jamie's bedchamber to the other side of Casterly Rock, set a guard outside Cersei's, and told them they must never do that again, or she would have no choice but to tell their lord father. They need not have feared, though. It was not long after she died birthing Tyrion. Jamie barely remembered what his mother had looked like. I couldn't help think about, you know, especially with him constantly thinking about Cersei, but in this very particular way of of her being entwined with his own view of himself is thinking about how the times in which Jamie was away from Cersei, and this is obviously one of those times, this is where he changes a great deal. And um, I was thinking again, like how, uh, how much he, how he defines himself based on Cersei in relation to Cersei. Um, But also a really interesting and important aspect that we're going to get into shortly is the one thing that really defines him differently or separates him from Cersei and even Tyrion who are both, you know, Cersei is the ambitious one, Tyrion's the smart one, and he's not either of those things. He's just good with the sword and how much, you know, he has himself and his identity wrapped up in that sword and how all that's going to change real soon. Yeah, there's a lot of like, how, how do you get better when you're taking the same poison every day that keeps killing you? 
and getting him away from Cersei has really been instrumental in getting him to finally evolve a little bit. So much of his behavior um, really reflects um, substance abuse disorder behaviors, and we see that in toxic relationships too. But <clears throat> like how often you see, we see his thought pattern where he gets near something he doesn't like or is kind of ugly, Aries, um, and he will just dive right back into obsessing about his sister and how that likely is kind of how he's coped throughout his life with all of the trauma, losing his mother, um, losing his family, you know, um, and being kind of shit on by everyone and Aries and all of that. And that how being obsessed with Cersei and, and getting sex from Cersei and really kind of fixating on her, on her, like he's still 17 is kind of a way that he uses to numb himself to all the other problems. And of course now he's been away from her for over a year and it's not working and it's going to really not work soon. Emotionally stunted for sure. in that 17 year old boy mode. Yeah. Jamie yeah. thinks that Stannis telling everyone about the incestuous relationship he has with Cersei was actually a favor. After all, the Targaryens practice incest. Why not them? I mean, the only problem is he, they could lose the throne. No big deal. NBD. NBD. <sighs> it's only based on that claim, guys. No worries. Yeah. Just gotta get a... They gotta get their good PR team, you know, as, as it goes. Um... I mean, like, that's the thing. It, maybe they, if the political narrative wasn't so against them, but it is. There's also, like, the whole power aspect. Like, like the Targaryens had the power of dragons, and they used that to bend the societal rules to the, what they wanted, the religious rules. And, like, I, I mean, yes, again, PR campaign, Jaehaerys ran a very, very extensive one, which was kind of rooted in eugenics but whatever um they had enough yeah. <laughs> a little bit just a bit, just a bit. Um, oh yeah by the way his wife made all of his decisions that were good yeah yeah also true sorry also true um you and carry on they had like yeah but like the targaryens they had enough power to overcome that really strong religious power that would have undone them it almost did quite a few times uh, in those early stages of the Targaryen conquest as we see in Fire and Blood. But I, I really appreciate that A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, people act like the Seven, again, I'm harping on this, it doesn't have power because it isn't magical, but it's a huge political power and force in Westeros. It comes to the forefront in Feast. It's something George has continued exploring in Fire and Blood. And Jamie doesn't seem to get this or understand why they can't get away with it. And Cersei does. Uh, and that's part of why she's like, oh, maybe, maybe I can try and make an alliance with the High Sparrow if I do this thing. But she played the game all wrong in that moment. It backfired. And, um, you know, maybe it was good. Maybe it was good that everyone didn't actually know or they didn't believe that she was sleeping with her twin brother in that moment. That wouldn't have gone well. Where's your lawyer, Cersei? Okay, let's just kind of point out. Um, I do think it, it is a great point to bring, like, to point out how the Targaryens, um, you know, they there really isn't much of a difference of between the Targaryens and the Lannisters, especially with you know Jamie. Like those relationships. I, I mean, I get everybody's got you know they've got their ships. I ship some of them too, but like, it is still like <laughs> it is horrific abuse of 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 daughters and mothers and sisters and cousins that was happening in that family, all for political power. It was not, you know, whatever propaganda we were told, 
it was all to maintain political power within one family. Um, and what I think is actually interesting is that the Lannisters almost did it. They almost did it. And the, the comparisons between the two regimes are really a difference between um, a military um, authoritarian structure when it comes to dragons as being a military power versus an economic uh, you know, political system because the Lannisters brought money. They didn't bring guns. They didn't bring, you know, they brought armies that they bought with their gold. And, and so I think that they really actually got close. The problem was that, um, honestly, I love Tywin. I got feelings. I love him. Um, but one of the things that I think that he did underestimate was, and honestly, what happens in Jamie in this chapter is a great example of it, is that he he didn't realize that there are certain things you can't buy. And that there are that the that that they didn't that he didn't account for the cultural differences that were at play with a lot of these different houses. And I think the that Cersei was smart in trying to go to the High Sparrow, but She's only so smart, you know. I mean, just like with Tyrion, the same way. <laughs> yeah. Like they've yeah. got their There's they've got cap. their strengths, but they're ne- I mean, everything. Like oh, I gotta fit this in. Everything Tyrion says to Cersei, he should be telling himself because he's not as smart as he thinks he is. And oh, the feelings. But yeah, no, like um, I, they there should have been war going on with you know, um. I just I feel like I feel like that you know the missteps and the mistakes that happen with the Lannister reign is not anything to do with incest and it's not anything to do with them being inherently evil or different than anybody else it was just strategic and honestly I think like if the mines hadn't been running out they might have done it yeah money accomplishes a lot Right. And I mean, uh, that's I go back to that thing. Lannisters are capitalism. And if uh, I think that also I think that um, that uh, Tywin invested in the wrong campaign PR because his was about fear me. I will do what it takes to kill everybody. I mean, that the reigns of Castamir is that Lannister propaganda of like, don't cross me because I will burn everything down. And that only works so long. And you look at Ned's legacy in the face of Tywin's legacy and you see whose kids survive and why they survive. And it's really obvious, which is what's so interesting about the way that Jaime approaches this now that, you know, he's too cool. Jaime too cool Lannister. He could never Mm -hmm. admit like that he wants to help. Right. That would be against his programming, obviously. The Sindere move. Yeah, absolutely. He would just be, you know, it's just against what he thinks. But in this, he starts thinking, you know. Maybe I should send the girls back to Catalan. I should buy both them and send them back. And he thinks it was not like to win him back his lost honor, but the notion of keeping faith when they all expected betrayal amused him more than he could say. Yeah, I love it. Big troll energy. Big mood. Owning the lids. I, I relate so hard. <laughs> Fucking edgelord. <laughs> teenage edgelord. Me, me. Teenage edgelord. Like inside of me is like, yes, I feel it. Right? Right. I'm like, this is like, again, where I'm like, God, you're such a, you're still fucking 17. Oh, God. And the actual growth we do see is that later on when he gives Brienne Oathkeeper, he says this is his last chance for honor, you know, to send his not girlfriend to go do his work for him. But I digress. Um, 
Jamie Lannister's changed, though. Uh, whatever. Okay, Brienne will go get half her face clawed out. How's that going for you, Jamie? You beautiful fuck. God. It's just bullshit, right? Like, why do we have to work the Always. hardest? It's such bullshit. Like, Jesus, dude. <laughs> Cleaning up men's messes. Sorry, go ahead. You're totally right, though, about this progression in his character, because him just spending time with her has opened him up to change. And it reminds me of Zootopia, when Nick in Zootopia is consistently calling Judy a cop, and in the end he's finally like, it turns out I admire you. Except in this scenario, Jamie is calling Brianna a cop, and she's like, yeah, but you're a fucking cop. Like, what the fuck's wrong with you? You are a cop. You're supposed to be a cop. Like, where did you go wrong, bitch? Oh, it's so true. <laughs> and I love the Zootopia Aww. reference. I love Yes. I just rewatched it the other day. I'm sorry, but like every scene with them, he's just like, oh, you're so good. You're such a goody goody. And she's like, I just want to do good things. And he's like, oh, you're so good. <laughs> oh, that that's why you messaged me and was like, oh, Jamie and Brienne are like Zootopia. I was like, okay. Yep. That was drinking. Too, but, but yeah, no, to circle back <laughs> to the name thing and of like, you know, the trope of, of two characters, you know, um, either using, you know, first names or or they're only addressing somebody by their surname or title is, is you know, a way to draw a wall or a boundary in a relationship. Like we're keeping it professional or, or whatnot. And when I think it's interesting is you can actually mark exactly where Jamie and Brienne are individually at in their arc and especially their view of the other based on what they're internally thinking about that person's name and what name they're using out loud. And I, and I think it's really interesting how soon Jamie wants her to say his name and how soon he's thinking of her as Brienne, even though he might be saying wench. Say my name, say my name. Big Destiny's <laughs> Child energy. <laughs> when no one is around you. Say baby, I love you. Oh, somebody write that yeah, AU and, pick and, right think... now. Sorry. <clears throat> it's you. It's you got Gene be you. over there on Notepad just like scratching away. You have to write it. <laughs> yeah. This is your version now. now. With the, All we're giving you Oathkeeper. Yeah, you have the Oathkeeper of fanfic. The next idea is domestic AU bills, bills, bills. Oh. oh. You're welcome. <clears throat> so I do want to say the best part of this dynamic is kind of that. With a lot of what you've been saying, Jean, Jamie has spent his entire life thinking he is Cersei. They are one. They are the same person. And for the first time in his life, he doesn't know how to deal with the fact that Brienne is more like him than Cersei is. Uh, he's never actually known this woman. And Cersei, in the end, like, it's no one to him when he finds out that she's been betraying him. That's the ultimate betrayal to him. Uh, he's just, like, put her on this pedestal in his mind that she's this perfect being when it turns out he meets Brienne and he loses his shit because Brienne is this person he has shut out for so long. This is the 15-year-old Jamie who wanted to be a knight to protect Cersei before he loses her like he lost Joanna to lose what he thought was the only softness left in his life. Like when he was young, he put so much of this identity into being a Kingsguard and a knight and those institutions failed him like we see them failing Brienne and Sansa and Catelyn and knighthood in general as an institution has failed. Because it can't remain pure on the honor system alone due to that Lannister capitalism, due to this feudalism that has hoarded 
the resources that operate that. When knighthood smote him and when society smote him for being a knight, he put all he had left into this Lannister identity. And when Cersei betrays that and then when Tyrion betrays that too, the very Mm. innocence that he swore and failed in many ways to protect, well, it shatters his Lannister identity as well. He's left broken, trying to reform and refine himself in the Riverlands at the crossroads. And if Brienne hadn't been in these storm chapters, Jaime probably wouldn't be living it's a really powerful dynamic and relationship, whether it's consummated or not. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Are you saying Jamie's a broken man? What? No, legitimate question. Are you saying that Jamie's part of this broken man theme that's going on in the in the books? Yeah, absolutely. I, yes, I would absolutely say yes, especially when we think about the fact that he is about to lose his hand, which is directly connected to his giant fucking phallic symbol. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a man that had to be broken beca- to become his whole person. Because absolutely, as you point out, like, he he isn't a full person. And there is a lot, you know, as we've been talking again and again, there is arrested development happening with him. And now that he's had to exist on his own and make choices on his own, and now he's being backed into a corner to make some really fucked up choices. Um, even when he, like, I like how often, and this happens in one and two as well, where he will think he's going to do something, like hit Brian in the head with an oar, and instead he reaches it out to her. And he, he keeps thinking what he's going to do, and then he actually acts and does something that's an instinctually good, as he will do here very shortly. I'm going to shut up now. Yeah. Um, as they ride, Jamie hears a thrum, though, and he's like, whoa, I know that's on everyone duck. He's like those motherfucking crossbowmen. <laughs> those crossbowmen. <laughs> so, he's so point, mad. In this moment, Jamie could have just shut up and rode, and let them get attacked. But what is he? His first True. instinct is to yell "duck" to the other two people who he doesn't even like, supposedly. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll shut up. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. no absolutely. And, and like, you know, he says it. It's too late though because there's now a an arrow in his horse's butt. Uh, Cleos also died, but the horse has an arrow in its butt. (laughs) I'm traumatized. Poor horse. That's awful, that poor one-eyed little shit. It was wonderful. I know. God, pour one out for that horse. Not for Cleos, fuck Cleos, but... (laughs) Cleos, the horse. Um... You know what's funny is right around uh, in just a couple chapters, Brienne in this moment, her horse has a bunch of arrows in her back and leg. She's on her no, horse, but like she Brienne has a bunch has in her ear. leg. She So she has a bunch of arrows stuck in her back and leg. And you know who else gets arrows stuck in their back and oh. leg in this book? John. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Yes. Wow. I'm Amazing. always bringing the hot facts. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> But she's still riding strong. Uh, John did yeah. too, just barely. But she's riding proud and strong, like a boss. Like, impressively, stoically. Exactly. She's like, whatever. I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna bring my sword out. I'm like, yeah, that's me in video games, not in real life. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Jamie's like, yeah, yeah, Brienne, cheering her on. Uh, and he's also charging for some reason. Well, he's charging as a distraction, uh, even though he's in chains. And Brienne's charging, and she's yelling. Even fall and then Tarth, Tarth, and I love that she's Aww. doing this. It reminds me of like that scene. It's actually really like 
a terrifying scene, but where it's also wholesome because Arya is yelling Winterfell as she hits people, and Hot Pie's yelling Hot Pie, Hot Pie, and I'm like, yeah, how's Hot Pie? Is the best. I'll be mad if we don't get more Hot Pie in the books, but I think we will. The bowmen break before her as they do before knights, and she stopped because they ran. And he's like, "That's the best time to go." He goes on another tirade about the vices of bowmen. He's got feelings. Yeah, he's like, oh, those cowards. <laughs> I know. He's so mad all the time. It's great. And and part of it is like, is he playing? It, it's like both foreshadowing, but also irony because of like Tyrion's closing chapter and, you know, Jamie's final actions in this book, right? Which actually, again, it is a good thing that he does freeing his brother. He doesn't think about it too much. He's like, I will do this good thing for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... So he tends, he offers to tend to Brienne's wounds, and she's like, I've seen this porn. Hoomst? Hoomst? They go find Cleos's body, and Jamie loots it. He's like, whatever, I have other cousins, and funnily enough, the other cousins are betraying him, so ha ha ha. And Moonboy, for all he knows. And he takes Cleos's sword, and, you know, decent drops, decent loot, some XP. Brienne refuses to let him have the sword, though. She's like, no, 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 no. I know this is a rare drop for you right now, but absolutely not. They argue about, okay, then who's going to keep watch? Jamie's like, I will make an oath when I do it. And she's like, whoa, your oaths are worthless. You swore an oath to Ares. And Jamie then drops some hints about, like, but, like, Ares was burning people. And then he just loots Cleos anyway. <laughs> Seriously, so many cousins. <laughs> they make you... Swear and swear? (laughs) Jamie was tired. Tired of her suspicions, tired of her insults, tired of her crooked teeth and her broad, spotty face and that limp, thin hair of hers. Wait a second. Is this the 10 things I hate about you speech? I love that I don't like your crooked teeth or your broad, spotty face and your limp, thin hair. Oh, don't do that to me because that's that's a very... Oh my god, there's another AU. That's a variation of a Shakespearean sonnet that's all about how how ugly the girls... Oh, god, don't go into that. The layers, the layers. What is it? 38? No. It's the Dark Lady lady sonnet. You know, obviously, joining the Kingsguard as the youngest Kingsguard, so you know, I can't even imagine the kind of hazing that happens in the Kingsguard. Um, But then post-Aries having to... Um, kneel and beg Robert to take him back and then you know having Barristan the bold look on him and Ned to look at him like he's a piece of shit and hearing everybody whisper Kingslayer behind his back and how how so much of all this is not just about Brienne but is is this building of rage of just being so tired and I and I like the fact that it's it is it is an action of anger but the fact that he's tired you know, and that—that that is a man that is about to reach rock bottom. Yeah, and Cersei is like obviously the biggest instigator of that rock bottom, right? Like that's the catalyst. That is what breaks the camel's back. And we were just talking about the Dark Lady sonnets from Shakespeare, and in Sonnet One Forty Seven, he's talking about how his love for the Dark Lady has driven him mad, like to the point where he's feeling ill, and how he doesn't understand how he ever thought she was beautiful and radiant, and how her dark beauty, her evil nature, now has changed those characteristics. Like now he thinks of hell and night when he sees her, um, and it starts out, you know, so different. Like in One Twenty Seven. Uh, yet so they mourn becoming of their woe that every tongue says beauty should look so is very reminiscent of Cersei 
And in Sonnet 138, Therefore I lie with her, and she with me, and in our faults by lies we flattered be. But bit by bit, he starts to break away from this dark lady. Wait, is, is Jamie supposed to also be, in a way, an embodiment of the fair youth sonnets? I think so, in a way. Hmm, I don't know. Yeah. A thought. A thought that yeah. just came from... A thought for another chapter, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Just let it float there. Maybe for the bathhouse <gasps> yes. chapter, you should look into wow. that. Wow. Maybe. Just saying. Just saying. For now, Jamie's grabbing the sword, and he tries to hit Brienne. I left a, a pause there. Uh, he's ready, and she's already ready, though, for all this, and she parries his blow, and he's like, oh, okay. Damn. Uh, Brienne tries to coax Jamie into giving her the sword, and he's like, oh, I will. And then comes at her again. Boom, 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 boom. Sorry, that's my sexual subtext drums. <laughs> it's a common. Oh, it's, oh, it's a common. Um, it, because this is one of the most sexually charged scenes in all of like the all of the Song of Ice and Fire like media books, all the extra stories, whatever. That's how I feel about this. I. I really just like the scene. It, it gives me the same feeling as the sparring scene between Mako and Raleigh in Pacific Rim. Also one of the greatest sex scenes ever that is technically not a sex Amen. scene, but it is also technically is. Because Del Toro says he filmed the scene to uh, the way that one would film a sex scene. So much tension. It's so, uh, so steamy. So good. Yeah. This has more t- sexual tension than Brangelina in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Then Zorro and Elena sparring. Mm. Then Batman returns Catwoman and Batman. Like, this is mm. raw, charged energy. This is like, throw yes. each other on the ground and lick each other's sweat off. What? Okay. <laughs> I'm just giving the people what they want, Eliana. Oh, it's okay. I was thinking of the hyena licking the pug again, and I was traumatized all oh, over again. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> LaBelle Sauvage spoilers. Um, yes. Except and- everyone's already read it except you. <laughs> Uh, so, true. So, so, to make this point, which I don't think I need to make the case for, but regardless, I will bring in choice lines from this fight scene, along with some summaries of the books, but here's, here's that first quote. The swords kissed and sprang apart and kissed again. Jamie's blood was singing. This was what he was meant for. He never felt so alive as when he was fighting, with death balanced on every stroke. And with my wrists chained together, the wench may even give me a contest for a time. <coughs> okay, stroke. I know. Do you like how I emphasized that, uh, certain words? That was beautiful. Words? That was beautiful. But yeah, to reiterate the, the note I made earlier about how um, his identity, his individual identity, identity is wrapped up in his sword and his fighting. But it really, when you think about it, even sex has been defined for him by Cersei. So having this moment with another woman, when you think about it, um, it's an incredibly fighting, especially when it, I have this whole theory about fighting and fucking and this idea of that violence is, is just as intimate and act, especially when it's one-on-one in this kind of com- combative um, type of dynamic. There is a kind of intimacy that's happening, especially, especially as we see as this progresses where all pretenses of, you know, that we would have in normal polite society and social behavior is set aside when we are up against somebody as an aggressive force. We, you know, either, either be it sexually or, or physically violent, we are 
to some extent, you know, this is where often sex can can turn into physical violence and can turn into violences where we start to disregard um, performing for the other person and are performing for our own needs and our own pleasure. And so what I think is interesting in this dynamic is that we're getting to see Jamie 100% Jamie. No Jamie informed by Cersei, no Jamie performing for other people. And that's part of where I see um, him feeling the way uh, being so into this is we're getting to see an aspect of him that is 100% and solely him. Yeah, it's super violent. And yeah, there's probably a lot of problems about crossing over sex and violence, but I do think that it, um, it is a, a, that there's a point, there's a, a nakedness to people when they are being violent that is, is parallel in when people are having sex. And so anyway, well, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's why there's obviously some of the really great and valid criticisms when it comes to like season yes. eight, for example. Um, it, it's a very intense idea, very intense. Uh, it's just as intense as sucking someone's tongue out of their face, you know? Yes. Like, well, and and when you think about it too, um, so often, um, you know, again, going back with those dynamics of what um, can be problematic in Jamie and Cersei's sexual relationship is that so often how we conceptualize sex is is a fight, is a duel for power and dominance. And so it's not that hard to imagine that, that if Jamie has looked at every transaction and relationship in his life as a fight for dominance that he usually gives up because he's a bottom, um, then, you know, then fighting is the purest version of the, his first language. Jamie thinks the length of Cleos's sword, <laughs> lewd, uh, means that he can do this. <laughs> is, is, isn't it, a, isn't it short for, for shorter than what Jamie's used to? Isn't that? <laughs> Are you trying to, uh, under, I don't, what kind of compensation plans happening here, Jamie? High, low, overhand, he rained down steel upon her, left, right, backslash, swinging so hard that sparks flew when the swords came together. Upswing, side slash, overhand, always attacking, moving into her, step and slide, strike and step, step and strike, hacking, slashing, faster, 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 until, breathless, he stepped back and let the point of the sword fall to the ground, giving her a moment of respite. Not half bad, he acknowledged, for a wench. She took a slow, deep breath, and her eyes watching him warily. I would not hurt you, Kingslayer. As if you could. He whirled the blade back up above his head and flew at her again, chains rattling. Quick refractionary re uh, period there. <coughs> yeah, um, it's like when you parry in the video games, I guess. I don't know. You can get that split second where everything slows down and you get to strike back. I Just had to firm games. things up, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Jamie loses track of time, whether the fighting goes on for hours or minutes. And then uh, Brienne just keeps blocking his attacks as though he drives them anyway. Boom, 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 boom. Sorry, that's the the, the drums of sexual <laughs> subjects gets louder. Sorry. <laughs> sexual Jumanji. <laughs> So here's an interesting parallel we could explore for a second. We earlier talked about how Rohan and Dunk were uh, an interesting kind of parallel. And right here we get Jamie pinning Brienne up against an oak tree, which we've talked mm. in the last couple episodes about Brienne's Dunk connection. 
Uh, and Jamie, of course, has the Rohan Weber connection in that she is his great grandmother. So keep that one on the dial. But uh, he pinned her against an oak, cursed as she slipped away, followed her through a shallow brook, half choked with fallen leaves. Steel rang, steel sang, steel screamed and sparked and scraped. And the woman started grunting like a sow at every crash. Yet somehow he could not reach her. Jesus Christ. It writes itself. Right? It really does. Right? <laughs> I don't even need a drum. It's- I was like, I, I'm yeah. not... I could just put a little huskier voice on and we could sell this. You could, like, for a you lot could of do money. the grunting. Oh <laughs> like a sow. Like and a I, sow. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I love that they say like the dance went on and like the earlier passage that we pulled was just sounded like dance steps. Sounded like square dancing. I don't know. Left, right, back, slap. <laughs> so Where would that... you come from? Where would you go? Where would you come from? God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what's happening here. Um, Jean, did you want to read this uh, comment that you have here aloud highlighted with the I would not hurt you, Kingslayer, off to the side? Uh, you know, honestly, that was just like a, a soft, shippy moment for me of that. A soft core? No, no. Was that what you were <laughs> no, looking for? No, it was just, a, it was just, that was straight, pure, 100% uh, Jamie Brand shipping moment of that, like, she's like, I would never hurt yes. you. And I'm like, she really means Aww. that, Jamie. Of all the people, including some of your family, this chick's not gonna hurt you until the last book. <laughs> um, but you know, just just my feelings about the fact that she, you know, is going as hard as she is in this fight, but has no intention of hurting him, and will get echoed later in her actually sticking up for him when other people try to hurt him. Yeah, I, I'm just, like, afraid. You know, I've always, like, from the beginning, been on that, like, Jamie Brand, like, train ship, you know, but I, I'm just afraid. I, I don't, it's a song of ice and fire. I can't let myself, like, feel, you know? Oh, and they won't get a happy ending. Like, that's not I know. fair. They I'm just, like, too afraid to, like. Oh, no, everything, everything we love is going to die. Afraid. I mean, I go in this way. I know this. Like, yeah, it's all yeah. good. Part of the pain. It's yeah. the it's the it's the you salty know? and the sweet, the bitter and the in the beautiful. It's yeah, you just gotta. It's part of the the. This... It's part of the appeal because I'm a terrible masochist. But yes, yeah. Well, yeah. and it's part of the whole entire yeah. Beauty and the Beast trope. You know what I mean? Mm. As uh, look, I I know there's been a lot of uh, a lot of chit chat and drama sometimes around my Brienne and Jamie takes. The official stance is that look, Jamie has gotten better, but. Most men tend to be trash. It's not their fault. Jamie emulates that. Uh, it reminds me of an ex that, like, I just remember he would never go buy his own toilet paper and would ask me to buy it. And one day I got so mad because he was just sitting around playing GTA and he told me to get toilet paper. And I was just like, I yeah, gotta dump this yeah, guy. Yeah. You know? And, like, Jamie asks Brienne to go get the toilet paper all the time. That's all. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just saying. He could go get it himself. Anyways, but. I do love their dynamic. Like, obviously, you've heard me blather on this episode. I do love their dynamic. I just love Brienne more than I love Jamie is probably oh, yeah. the problem. I don't know. I love that girl. Like, I would protect her with my fucking life. Um, but now that Jamie would protect her with his life, I feel better about him and her. Like, I, they can go on a date, maybe out for an ice cream, maybe out to die. I don't know. But I am I'm a multi shipper, so I can imagine everybody together. So it, for me, it's yeah. never really. I mean, I get the the um i want better for a character that i love 
I like seeing the interactions between people, be they romantic or platonic anyway. And, um, and I really yes. like relationships that bring out different and new things. I mean, much in a similar way, um, I loved the scenes between Tywin and Arya in the show um, of getting to see mm. two characters that I would have never imagined being in a room together and the things that, like, what they showed about themselves while interacting with each other. And that's the most compelling yeah. part about this relationship is how much they both grow yeah. from being from knowing each other and ultimately are better people for it good people great people i don't know that's somebody else to judge but what for me is the idea and the fascination with wanting to see more of their interaction and and all that yeah anyway and see what a badass even more of a badass mm. Brienne becomes you know i mean no chance no choice which someday we're gonna get to that is such a powerful scene mm. like one of the most yeah. powerful scenes in all of a song of ice and fire that jamie didn't he didn't harsh her mellow right like as much as his jaded ass wanted to in these chapters he didn't uh she it reinforced her want to be good and if you haven't heard it i highly recommend listening to the song by the manimals called good it's about brienne of tarth and how she just wants to be good and she's the best so uh check it out it's on their album seven it's on Bandcamp mm. for free and spotify hmm um, same as how when uh, Sam was in John's chapters and that became the podcast about Sam and not about John. That's sometimes how I feel. I'm like, but what if I just talked about Brienne here, right? Because Jamie is so impressed with Brienne's skill and he just tries to neg her for a second. It's like, for a squire. Uh, <laughs> then he <laughs> asks her, may I have this dance, my lady? Come and on. Brienne takes up her hand here. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Jamie's like, oh, shit. Oh shit, she's stronger than me. He's like, ooh, this is what I want. I mean, I, excuse me. Uh, and then he lists in his head a bunch of people who were stronger than him. One of them, some of them are the Cleganes. One of them is Robert Baratheon. And I do find that interesting because George has actually said that Brienne may be of similar of height to Robert when he was describing how tall she is. Like over six feet, but not close to seven. Mm. Um, mm. It, it also reminds me of some of the things that Lowe said in the Twitter thread we referenced in Jamie 2. Jamie's masculinity is tied up like in his skill with fighting but it's also tied up in his strength I do think of course Brienne has like metered some of her strength right it wasn't wasting it like Jamie also he's been sitting for a while whatever but it also provides like context for why a lot of the other characters and we'll see this in Brienne's chapters more because this that's just how we're going to talk about this like they cut her down constantly for not conforming to those gender norms and at its core like it's because Brienne is a threat to the assumptions that hold up this patriarchal order in Westeros. She threatens the idea that men are just inherently stronger or better at fighting. You know, this idea that, it, it, and it's threatening to them because they're like, oh shit, a woman, it's someone that they might not have power over that, that right. I exerting power over someone else. And because of that, like when Jamie realized it, realizes it the language is saying that like it chills him yeah i mean first we let them have jobs and now they can have children and that's it now they want a seat at the table god (laughs) they want a sword when will these women stop when will Uh... they stop when will we stop chloe (laughs) jamie is definitely chilled knowing brienne is stronger brienne's not wearing down jamie is and he falls in the point of his sword pierces her leg and we get this language and i think it's important language to bring up it's a little charged as we've mentioned 
His point scraped past her parry and hit and bit into her upper thigh. A red flower blossomed and Jamie had an instant to savor the sight of her blood before his knee slammed into a rock. The pain was blinding. I'm not saying this is implying him popping her cherry, but they're in maiden pool. <laughs> like, it is. Like, it oh, is. And, and I wanted to point out that she actually drew blood first, penetrated him, as it were, when she uh, sliced him above his eye. <clears throat> Just saying, for the record. Oh, so Brienne's pegging Jamie. Yeah, I was like, give us the Brienne and Jamie pegging story. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and the Jamie and Brienne, you know, shipping fandom, it's it's a thing. I'm just saying. The fic is out there. Oh, I'm sure. We um, have much to learn. We yeah, have much to learn. I hope our friends do. over at our Bramie keep teaching us things. Or Jamie and Brienne, is that what it is? I don't remember. I, know, I hope they keep listening and teach us things because this is not our forte forte. Also, send me... Please DM us the pegging stories. This is not a joke. This is just for serious. research. We want to be really well yeah, educated. For science. You know? <clears throat> yeah, for science. For um, science. Share. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Brienne tells him to yield once more. Jamie drove his shoulder into her legs, bringing oh. her down on top of him. They rolled, kicking and punching until she was finally sitting astride him. Well, 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 if it isn't Jamie McBottom pants. <laughs> I am very sad that when I when I initially heard the casting for Brienne, I got for the show. I was so excited imagining that we were going to actually get live action sexy mud wrestling, and we didn't get it. And I'm fine with what we got, but that is sexy mud wrestling. Just saying, dude, she's astride him mm. again, and the red flower. It's all there. It's all there. He didn't even have to like tell people. It it writes itself. Literally, the whole books write themselves, which explains why <laughs> we don't have the next one. Yeah, whatever. The automation rest- has oh ended. They wrestle in the water. She threatens to drown him. And Jamie's like, oh, that would be heartbreaking. <laughs> uh, Jamie's like, I have the best boner. <laughs> yes, I mean, <laughs> don't hit me. <laughs> Look at my other sword. <laughs> oh, then she lets Jamie fall into the water. And then laughter fills the woods. Brienne lurched to her feet. She was all mud and blood below the waist, her clothing askew, her face red. She looks as if they caught us fucking instead of fighting. Jamie crawled over the rocks to shallow water, wiping the blood from his eye with his chained hands. Armed men lined both sides of the brook. Small wonder we were making enough noise to wake a dragon. Well met, friends, he called to them amiably. My pardons, if I disturbed you, you caught me chastising my wife. Um, I just want to point out that so some of the sex that we do see with Jamie and Cersei is very much so coerced, sometimes on his side to her. She doesn't really want to fuck him. We see the way she acts with other dudes, too, the same way. It's not just him. Like, this is just Cersei. Um, and the way she actually, when she gives her uh, herself to someone, it's not really that willingly. It's more of like, this is a chore. And with Jamie, there's a lot of weird moments that we do see with them where, you know, she doesn't even want to take her dress off. This is like an act of, like you've said, Jean, transactional. And so with this, like he says, it looks like we've been caught fucking, not fighting. But when has he and Cersei ever been caught muddy and bloody fucking? He's never By had sex like that in his maybe. life. So this is oh, like his true. real inhibitions coming out. Like that this is the sex he wants to be having. 
This is Jamie's kinks is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about, too, of like, like you said, like um, the interactions we've seen with him and Cersei is definitely seems a lot more um, controlled, which is very much how it feels Cersei is in everything, because everything, especially in her interactions with men, are calculated. So it's not even me holding anything against her. I get it. (laughs) I like her. But um, so imagining (laughs) that, yeah, sure, they had hot sex or whatever, but um, did they ever have anything so raw and, like, unrestrained as what he just had with, uh, I mean, with, with, with Brienne? And... Right, right. Not and, in a long and, time. And you get That's the dual sure. level of that he's probably never fought with somebody who is this evenly or more matched, you know, a better fighter than him. And at the same time, it is probably the most he's ever interacted with a woman that's not his sister. And so all of that happening together is, oh. you know, yeah, of course he's going to make that a, that connection between sex. And it's, it's going to change, obviously, his interactions and how he views Brienne. Also, they were totally fucking... Sorry. And, and it's not just that, as you were saying, like, regarding his interactions with Cersei, part of it is, like, so much of it is secretive. And I think that's part of the big thrill for them, right? It's always in private. Whereas here, you know, they they were caught. They're out in the open. It reminds me almost of like the Dothraki, right? Like they have sex out in the open. Like they they would be able to do and that. Be loud. And yeah. It's yeah, and, and public about it, and and there's it's something very, very different about that. It's very free. And to think about how physically and and yeah. mentally this whole journey starting when he was in the dungeons has been him losing bit by bit his Lannister mm. identity to the point that he's in the mud in chains with a shaved head and with another woman. And he, there is a freedom in not having to be Jamie Lannister. Here's a person, Rorge, uh, the man lacking a nose. He's like, I actually looked the other way around. Like she was chastising you. And Jamie realizes, oh, these are not the outlaws who killed Cleos. These are the brave companions. And Jamie apparently knows this because they don't look Westerosi. Yeah, the the language is really weird in this description and the characterization of the brave companions and how they act in this chapter. I'll just say that. They're kind of a weak supporting cast in this, in my the, opinion. They're just so othered. The yeah, way that it, Jamie thinks of very them. Very cheap writing. Am I, it's not, I, I don't know, uh, a lot of people, obviously, like, we, we've got into a lot of it with some of the stuff with the Dornish and the Free Folk, and e- of course, anything East, really, we're going to get to when we someday get to Danny because there's a lot to talk about, especially with the Dothraki, that George just doesn't, I don't know, it's a little, it's a little flimsy, that's all, it's a little flimsy. Well, I mean, it does feel like he kind of was like, okay, um, who, who, I got some spare dis- character descriptions laying around, let me just kind of shuffle the papers, and then there we go. There we got them. We got them. Before we meet the brave companions, Jean is going to have to take off. Thank you so much for coming on, then. You can do a last closing, how you feel about Jamie and Brienne. I mean, they are a great example of two characters that we would have never imagined them being stuck together. and But yet, by bringing them together, we learned they themselves and we learn so much about them and that they change so much. And that's... We've talked a lot about the Beauty and the Beast dynamics with Jamie and Brienne, but I think what's more interesting, or not more interesting, but less talked about, is the potential for growth 
that they rep they both represent that we do see in mm. other characters um but we see it the most with these two and the idea of that this world is so i mean i love it but this world is so harsh especially to good people that um mm-hmm. when we do get moments of honesty and trust and loyalty and and love be it romantic or not but like just honest emotional intimate connection between two people it is it shines that brighter and i think it shows in these unconventional or just unexpected relationships between characters like jamie brienne um also uh theon and jane um we get these characters who just Mm. kind of are thrown together and we didn't even expect to see them and they somehow through knowing each other and surviving something traumatic become different and better people and improve. And I think that's one of those aspects. And we're seeing that this chapter is showing us the beginning of that journey for, uh, for Jamie, because really if Jamie had been the cold hearted bastard that he thinks he is, he would still have his hand at the end of this chapter. Jean, thank you so much for joining us today on our Jamie 3, A Storm of Swords episode in A Song of Ice and Fire. This has been a blast. Uh, Please tell us where we can find you on the internet. What's going on with you lately? Thank you so much for inviting me. I love the podcast and I love both of you. And this has been a huge ball of fun. (laughs) Um, You can find me at... uh, fangirlgene.com uh, also uh, you can always find me on twitter under fangirlgene <laughs> and um that yeah those are the two places to find me again thanks for inviting me yes thank you so much Jean. i'm so excited that you were able to join us today and um you know you always have such great insights and i'm so glad you were able to bring some of those here with us tonight i had a i had a revelation yeah jamie is eleanor and Brienne oh. is cheaty. Think about it. Is that why I don't like Jamie? Because I'm Jamie? Is that what you're Whoa. saying to me? I don't know. No, it's more just like, you know, the idea of growth and the potential of growth. It makes me think of oh. uh, a lot of the lessons that are in the good place. But also the cynicism that Eleanor brings is absolutely so Jamie. Yeah. That's Because he's afraid. Yeah. Huh. So anyways, Brienne tries to placate the, the brave companions with money. And they're like, cool. We'll take that, and we'll rape you. And then they... Oh. I know, this is a terrible deal. They insult Brienne's looks as they discuss ways to assault her, and Jamie's like, whoa, this is this is not okay. He asks, who is the commander here? And it's Urswick, quote-unquote, the faithful, and Jamie's like, okay, okay. So, all of you know who I am, right? You know I pay my debts, I got a great credit score... Brienne here is also highborn. She's worth money. <clears throat> and in between all this, Jamie thinks about how Tywin calls Gregor and Amory Lorch their dogs. Like, all of them. All the people under him. He calls his, like, hired dogs, more or less. And then I had a moment here where I was just like, oh, okay, I get it. Now now I suddenly understand why Joffrey just keeps calling Sandor like his dog. Yeah, part of it is because his nickname's the Hound, but apparently I guess he just learned this from his grandfather. Yeah, he kind of copies Tywin's moves, and it also reminded me of his Dark Materials, how mm. servants have dogs as their demons, by the way. <sighs> now that you say that, you, I was like, oh. I know. I, th- I think about that constantly, and I'm like, damn. All right. <laughs> so fucked up. Uh, so Jamie continues to distrust these guys. He's like, where's Vargo Hote if you guys are the brave companions? 
And apparently Vargo is a few hours away, and they're like, also, don't call him goat to his face. So Jamie learns that Vargo is now a lord. A lord of Harrenhal. What? Chica, what? As Jamie asks to get his fetters removed, he starts to think that something is wrong. First off, the Bloody Mummers are serving Lord Bolton and Rob, not Tywin. He makes a snarky comment about honor and gets punched in the stomach. This time, it's Brienne who pipes up and says he's not supposed to be harmed as part of a hostage exchange. Uh, she tries to get her sword from the bottom of the water where they are, and it takes four of the men to take her down, but they eventually do, and they knock out two of her teeth, which I really don't like at all. Mm. Brienne. Brienne. You know, <sighs> Brienne picking her sword out of the water kind of reminded me of a perverse, like, twisted lady of the lake thing here. Yeah, um, and maybe not so much here, but, you know, the Lady of the Lake in Mythos, she's an enchantress, like an Irish, French Arthurian, English Arthurian, tons of different variants in pop culture. Generally, the tales of King Arthur, she lived in a castle beneath the lake surrounding Avalon. She raised Lancelot and gave Arthur a magical sword, Excalibur, which he treasured. When Arthur was near death, she saved him by taking him to Avalon. Uh, and Brienne, picking up her sword here, made me think of that. But her as Lady of the Lake step in is interesting with Jamie. She kind of plays this maternal role, this whole journey to Harrenhal. And we'll obviously bring this up again when we talk about Jamie's dream of his mother. But Brienne gets Jamie safely-ish to Harrenhal and eventually will in reverse receive a magic sword. I think that magic sword might be the ticket here, but Joanna in the water in the dream, sadly surveying him, is completely Lady of the Lake vibes, and Brienne in the bathhouse, and soon with the bloody mummers and taking care of him then, kind of takes on that role. It's very much so a born-again rebirth, like we said earlier with Jean. Uh, Brienne birthed Jamie. That's what I'm saying here. What? Yeah. I mean, it, there's that. There's the over Christian overtones of the baptism thing going on um and i think i've never thought about until this chapter and this discussion how much water is so significant to both of their storylines i mean a lot of it takes place of course within the riverlands and and i think it's interesting considering all the ways you've drawn the lady of the lake into this because we discussed how lancelot right uh plays a big role in how jamie's story seems to have been informed and the lady of the lake was lancelot's basically foster mother and Brienne is definitely his mommy in these chapters. Sometimes. Sometimes she kind of is. Just putting that out there. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> Jamie pities Brienne during all of this. He's certain she's going to be raped this evening, probably by Rorge. The men are now stripping Cleos's body, anything that Jamie didn't take already, divvying his possessions up, and Rorge has stolen the surcoat that Cleos wore, the Lannister and Frey quartering, as his prize. Jamie, Jamie didn't the loot arrows. the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. He just wants the coat. You gotta press X. Gotta keep pressing X, Jamie. God, Jamie. Well, he didn't want all that. And he obviously... Yeah. Who the fuck would want a surcoat that has a fray towers on it? It's true. He could that cut has it the out. twins on it. Yeah. Come on now. Come on. Uh, Jamie notes that the arrows have punched holes in this surcoat and have punched out the lion... And the twins on the surcoat. Hmm. Yeah, just to note, Jean. Jean said this was also foreshadowing. Jamie whispers to Brienne that, well, I hope she's happy that she didn't arm him now, and thinks that 
she is a pig stubborn bitch but brave she doesn't respond to him this time uh, but that doesn't turn him off from continuing he tells her don't resist them or you'll lose more teeth uh coming back to brienne's strength you know as a threat to that patriarchal order i i do think it's interesting that we get this scene here that's juxtaposed within the very same chapter as brienne us seeing her as such a holding her own very well against one of the best fighters in the series and that Jamie thinks of her in the same context when it comes to strength of many of the best fighters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire who are known for that strength like Brienne could probably take any of these brave companions on like one-on-one I think as a group obviously she can't like any most people can't that's just how groups work obviously like Jamie sees and experiences at the end of this chapter like the brave companions are horrific and depraved to literally anyone. They would like they would threaten this rape to any woman probably, but I do think it's really significant like on a narrative structural sense. Like in one moment Brienne defies a lot of those gender norms, yet the threat of sexual violence suddenly hangs over her head again here. And that the brave companions won't stop about it. It's their way of trying to reassert that patriarchal order over Brienne by trying to remind her and like quote unquote put her in her place as a woman because she's a threat to that order and their power in it. And I, I'm not trying to uh, contrarian you here, be contrarian at all. I don't. That's not the word. I'm not trying to be a contrarian here at all. But it is interesting. I do note that Jamie does this with Tommen as well. Um, later on, he tells him to go away inside. So this is a lot of how, uh, how Jamie just like operates too. Like that he, his immediate response is just, listen, if you just go away inside, it'll fix all of it. It'll all be fine. That's what I've been doing. And I'm great. Oh (laughs) yeah. And that's not contrarian at all. That's the, literally the advice he gives Brienne to try and deal with this. Um, and and it comes back to all those things that you and Jean were saying earlier, like, of he just turns to those memories of Cersei when things are rough. Like, when he's going away inside, in all likelihood, that's what he's doing. He's going away inside and reliving those moments with Cersei and replaying And romanticizing them. what they yeah. had. Yeah, absolutely. And it turns out it's a very, very toxic romanticization. Uh, it yeah. turns out that neither of them are really still in love, quote-unquote, with the other. Yeah. Um, Brienne then asks Jamie, okay, well, what would you do in this moment if you were a woman? And Jamie's like, well, if I were a woman, he says, he thinks this internally, if I were a woman, I'd be Cersei. But then he tells her instead, I'd make them kill me instead or first if I were one. Yeah, I'm sure you would, Jamie. I'm sure were the roles reversed, that is exactly what would happen. And again, this is something that he doesn't really have to worry about. Um, he's never really been captive in this manner where it was a serious danger. So Jamie's never really had to worry about that. He's usually had safety for the most part, besides when he fought like a few different things with the Kingsguard and with the Kingswood Brotherhood or against the Kingswood. Jamie calls it right with how Cersei would react because we do see at the end of A Clash of Kings, right? When the threat of sexual violence is hanging over the head of Cersei and everyone who's in the room during the Blackwater, Cersei reveals to Sansa, you know what, Ilan Payne's actually here because instead of us being raped if an army comes in here, she's like, I'm going to have Ilan Payne kill all of us. 
That's her plan. That's to keep her dignity and her respect as a woman. Yeah, then she she's like, this is me having a choice, but she doesn't offer any of the other women, I guess, or Sansa that same choice, but whatever. Jamie beckons Urswick back to them. He attempts to buy him off with gold, and he even says that Brienne comes from Tarth, where there are many, many sapphires. Uh... But Yerswick sees through this. He's like, do I look like an oath-breaker to you, Kingslayer? And, of course, we know the answer there. Do I look like a turncloak to you? Mm. Um, is this an answer people want? Yes. The answer is yes. Yerswick considers a trade. He's like, King's Landing is far off, though. And Tywin actually, you know, he's like, I don't think your dad's going to be too happy. About Lord Bolton getting the Heron Hall from the Mummers. And Jamie's like, mm, saw right through me. So he tries to sweeten the pot with like, but what about if I also threw in a royal pardon and a knighthood? Urswick's like, hmm, I could be a sir. That would make my He's wife like, proud. like, my wife would be so proud of me, but I murdered her. <sighs> Isn't he a nice guy? So I would want nice. to go on a date with Urswick. Like, what a strong so nice Urswick. <laughs> Jamie, uh, Jamie and him go on. He asks what will happen to the brave Lord Vargo Hote if Urswick accepts this deal. And Jamie says, well, you know the song, The Reigns of Castamere, which is, you know, the equivalent to, <laughs> I don't think my father, the inventor of toaster strudels, would appreciate this. Urswick asks if oh Tywin has super long arms to pull them out of Harrenhal, and Jamie's like, technically, kind of. Like, it's not like Harrenhal hasn't ever fallen, and he says that the goat cannot outfight the lion, and Urswick slaps him lazily across the face. I have heard enough, Kingslayer. I would have to be a great fool indeed to believe the promises of an oathbreaker like you. He kicked his horse and galloped smartly ahead. Ares, Jamie thought resentfully, it always turns on Ares. He swayed with the motion of his horse, wishing for a sword. Two swords would be even better, one for the wench and one for me. We'd die, but we'd take half of them down to hell with us. Brienne's not going to hell. Don't be rude. Two Swords was the title of episode 4X1, season 4, episode 1 of Game of Thrones, where uh, Jamie, where the swords were created, Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, out of Ned's sword. Mm-hmm. And I love the quote where he actually gives Oathkeeper to Brienne. Rubies glimmered in the light. She picked the treasure up gingerly, curled her fingers around the leather grip, and slowly slid the sword free of its scabbard. Blood and black, the ripples shone. A finger of reflected light ran red along the edge. Is this Valyrian steel? I have never seen such colors. Hmm. That's a good, that's a good catch. I forgot that that's the title of that episode. Two it's, swords, two swords. It reminds me of two chains. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, there's the same energy. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the idea that, yeah, we're going to just like go down and take them all with us, like, it's such a Jamie thought. I mean, again, this is basically his plan in the Whispering Wood. He's like, as long as I can take Rob down, even if I go down, it's all worth it. And I think it's just so indicative of Jamie's nihilist worldview. Like, this is... He's not, like, a forward thinker. You were all discussing it earlier. He doesn't really, like, make 
long-term decisions insofar as like I just got to get back to Cersei and he doesn't really care that much if he dies here so long as he's like good at fighting to an extent and it's the only identity as you've all said like that he's had this whole time so it's significant that like when later on in the story he does start thinking about like huh but what about my future what if I planned for that every now and then um there was this line in the show that uh he says you know I'm a slow learner are you being sarcastic no, I mean, that is, he says that in the show as well. There's a line where he says, I'm a slow learner. Huh. Sansa also says, actually. That's why I thought you were being sarcastic. Yeah, no. no, absolutely not. Uh, great parallels for their characters. But he says that, and it's very bitter when he says it. So I really thought that was interesting. They include that in the show. They put it in there when uh, it is indicative of his character, right? Like, he has been stunted since 17. He is this boy that can't fix his family. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's that, like, he's, he went through a lot of traumatic things, and also at the same time, no one's let him grow past that worst mistake, but also the best thing he's ever done. And because of that, you know, like, his whole life as a Lannister, he's never really had to think about, all right, what do I do with my future? No one's gonna, like, care. Uh, he, he's thought of it, like, all of twice before. He was just coasting. He was just like, I'm doing great. I got this sweet internship with Lord Sumner Craig Call. I wanted a better one, right, with Rhaegar, but whatever. And he still got promoted, right? Like, becoming a Kingsguard, almost all of it all kind of fell into his lap, but, like, not really, because his next big decision was, like, do I do I switch jobs? Do I take do I take the job with the Kingsguard? And then the next big decision he ever has to make is with Ares, and he's like, should I kill my new boss? Uh, I know yeah. I've only been here a year, but that's okay on my resume, right? Uh, real life decisions, yeah. like, they scare him. Battlefield ones don't. Once Yerswick has trotted off, Brienne asks Jamie why he mentioned Hearth's non-existent sapphires, and Jamie implies she better hope they exist, or she'll be subject to rape even faster. Every man here will mount you, but what do you care? Just close your eyes, open your legs, pretend they're all Lord Renly. Ouch, excuse me. Yeah, Even she's like, oh, okay. Um, they finally get to Vargo Hode at the day's end, and they find him. He's here, he's been chilling, sacking a sept with the other brave companions, normal things. <laughs> the gods have been dragged out in the front yard, kind of reminiscent of some Stannis stuff here. They've hanged a septum that they're using for archery practice on a chestnut tree. Vargo Hote is eating, very subtle, Vargo Hote is eating a half-cooked bird on a skewer, grease and blood flowing down his hands and beard. He wipes them off on his tunic and rises to meet his guests. Yeah, everyone in this story eats poorly and terribly for some reason. He calls Jamie his captive, and then Brienne tries to give her spiel like about Lady Cat, then he's like, silence her. And he's like, I don't give a shit. And she's like, okay, okay, I'm gonna try it again, this time in the name of Gar Vargo Hote's king. Maybe he'll listen to me. And, like, Roar just, like, no, I'm going to drag her off the horse and begins kicking her. And, you know, interesting here because that's, that, again, a nod that should have made us go, huh, why does King Rob's name mean nothing to him? Well, of course, the goat has no honor. We know that. However, yeah. also, his king's name that he now supposedly serves, Rob, uh, for Lord Bolton, no longer sparks his interest. Hmm. It's like, I don't serve any four-legged creatures that aren't goats. No wolves, just goats. Uh, Urswick tells Rorge to be careful because 
Brienne's worth her weight in sapphires. Do you ever think, like, what would this story be like if it came out during the time when Goat, you know, G- Greatest of All Times was, like, a thing in slang? Anyways, um, it reminds me, Brienne doing all this kind of reminds me of Sansa, because Brienne re- appealing to both Lady Catelyn and Rob Stark as authorities, like, I mean, obviously Brienne doesn't believe in all of the songs. She's been too disillusioned by the way that the world has treated her to do that. She knows it doesn't always work out that way. She holds on to the ideas of what knighthood should be. And she appeals to Hote's allegiances, I think, to the Starks. Because I think she still believes that those oaths are worth something to everyone that isn't Jamie. It's why she's always poking him about it. And then she gets cruelly and unjustly punished and beaten for thinking that this world order, like, that there is that order, and similar to how Sansa, right, is beaten by the knights and the Kingsguard for believing that, hey, maybe someone still holds to any sort of values. Yeah, um, that innocent till proven guilty kind of thing doesn't really work here, yeah. So two of the men, Timon and I think it's Tagjath, take Jamie from his horse and shove him in t- toward the fire, He thinks about grabbing one of their swords while they do this, but uh, he's still in fetters and he'd die if they did so. Jamie was not ready to die yet, and certainly not for the likes of Brienne of Tarth. Except, haha. Interesting. What if? And but? Vargo proclaims that it is a sweet day. Jamie notes a necklace around his neck. It's coins of every shape. King, wizard, God, demon alike, different sizes, hammered and cast, coins from every land where he has fought, uh, I don't know, like, so Vargo hotes into, like, collecting? Get a fucking well, binder. Something I thought of early when, earlier when you and Jean were talking about Lannister Gold is that with Vargo's necklace, as we learn here, Jamie's gold isn't good here. Mm. All this gold that Vargo accepts and uses or has taken... But Jamie's gold isn't good here. Yeah, it, it's interesting in the context of what she's saying about, like, oh, their capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. How could I make other people work for me? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and Vargo Hote won't. Yeah, and he gets it so wrong because, like, he's thinking that, oh, yeah, greed is totes the key to Vargo Hote. He begins to offer him things. He's like... Lord Vargo, you were foolish to leave my father's service, but it is not too late to make amends. You will pay well for me, you know it. Oh, yes, said the ha- Vargo Hote. Half the gold and carefully lack I shall have, but first I must send them a method. You're welcome. Thank you. I took one for the team there. I was like, what does she want to happen? Um, you know, again... This is the moment where Jamie should have realized, like, oh, it turns out, like, he is in my father's employ. Like, I'm a dumb bitch. Like, he, te- like, Jamie doesn't think this. He doesn't realize it. But we do. Like, maybe, maybe he's not technically not in Tywin's employ. Yeah, there's a lot of 4D chess going on here. Yeah. Play every ba- every battle in your oh, mind, Eliana. Oh, my God. Leave me alone. Urswick puts him on his back. A gesture in Motley then kicks Jamie's legs out from under him, and one of the archers uses Jamie's chains to keep his arms out in front of him. Zolo puts his knife down and brings out his rock. It's sharp 
and Sith scythe like. Fuck. I'm gonna try that again. It's sharp and scythe like. The goat wants me to piss my breeches and beg his mercy, but he'll never have that pleasure. He was a Lannister of Casterly Rock, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. No sellsword would make him scream. Sunlight ran silver along the edge of the Iraq as it came shivering down almost too fast to see, and Jamie screamed. A couple of thoughts with this last passage. Oh, reminds me of Quentin. I see you, George. Oh. I know what you like to do with body <laughs> horror. George loves yeah. his body horror and ending chapters with people screaming. Uh, he does the same thing when we get to Kyburn eventually, you know, with Jamie's hand, with the screaming and passing out. I, I love that he has, like, some characters, he does the fake outs with horror happening to him. Uh, but it also, this chapter, very much so has that Lannister pride, right? Like, the pride of the rock, uh, and hair grows back. I'm a lioness of the rock. They're taking strength in their home uh, from the Casterly Rock, much like the Starks do with Winterfell here. Yeah, it's hard because their home kind of sucked to them. Um, and, and, and regarding how the chapter closes, George writes it the same way, right? Like, by just sort of intimating what happens. He doesn't say and this is what happened. He There's like the before and then suddenly someone screaming or whatever and you your mind just fills in the gap of what happens. And I kind of... I, I obviously we know why the story and the narrative itself, right, calls for Jamie's hand to be cut off. And y'all kind of touched on this a little bit before. And I, I just like don't understand though. Like, Vargo Hort, what was, Vargo Hort, like, what was your long term strategy with all this? Like, did did you really think that this was gonna work out for you? Like, how how did you think that this was really gonna go well for you? Honestly, I really think George just needed someone to do this. For his plot to continue because I really do think like the companions are not really well etched out I mean they just you know like then they die because of Gregor and other people and it's over and they're dead and like that's fine too and I mean like obviously there's a because the audience grows so sympathetic for Jamie's chapters and the way that George writes them like you end up being like oh yeah that that's rad that's gnarly Right when Vargo Hote gets pieces of his body cut off and fed to him, and I know that's horrible and terrible, but like, I mean, like that's just how it's written and played out. But just like, uh, not on the meta level, not on the meta level. I'm just like Vargo Hote. What were you thinking? Why did you do this? This is so dumb. Anyway, yeah, it wasn't smart. Uh, but maybe he's not playing yeah. 4D chess. No, you're right. He's not. He's only on 3D chess, not 4D. He's playing 1D chess, dude. True. Maybe. He's playing like Maybe. Minesweeper at most. And oh he's my god! Each game. Yo, Minesweeper's hard. Okay. Um, it's not that hard. I'm. I'm just a dingus. Uh, another question: Do you think that, like, had Jamie screamed when they were threatening him? Maybe his hand would not have been cut off. You know, obviously, obviously, like, not within the parameters of, like, the narrative needed Jamie to do this for his, because it was part of the character development thing. Like, but, but being in the moment, like, the advice that he gave Brienne to just, like, acquiesce, just give them what they want. It's the same thing that Sandor tells Sansa, like, had Jamie screamed, would they have cut his hand off? A question. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because the very thing he told Brienne, like, 
no, absolutely not. <laughs> but it, it's what he told Brienne, uh, and I think it really ties into that idea of his masculinity we keep talking about on how, you know, his sword hand is everything. Uh, and for Jamie, Brienne getting raped, he doesn't understand what that's like. He doesn't understand what that means, that he's telling her to become a shell of a being just to get through uh, someone using her and against her will. Like, He's underestimating what that does to a person, but also at the same time, estimating that you can just go away inside during that when several men are brutalizing you. Like, he's just so flippantly regarding it. And then his very masculinity is torn from him. It's ripped from him. The only thing he has, the only thing that has kept him sane through all of the crazy bullshit, through Cersei, through Robert Baratheon, through Ares, through all of this, has been his sword, his sword hand. It's the only thing he's good at. And for him, suddenly, the moment that's taken from him, like, that is scream-worthy. Um, so I think for Jamie, like, equating, like, for Brienne to go away inside while she's brutalized and how easy that is, and then for him to get his masculinity ripped from him instead of her getting her femininity brutalized, that's something that's very interesting. It's an interesting play that George is definitely trying to contrast. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, like, that's a great analysis of what's going on there. And a great place to end the episode. Who knew I was a Jamie stan? I I think I knew that you could be one deep down inside. I'll never tell. I know, I know. Everyone thought we were going to clash so hard, but here I am. I'm just like, but Chloe, but what if? I'm actually really reasonable. It's just, I yeah. just have some strong opinions, that's all. I just think he's one of the best written characters in... Oh, and he's entirely complex. Like, he's a great character. Yeah. I just don't always agree with his actions, which is sure. fine. You don't have to do that with characters, because they're just characters. Yeah, I don't agree with, like, real people. I don't agree with, like, all the characters. That's the point. You're not supposed to, because they're supposed to, like, be complex. The best ones are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can catch us uh, with some complex characters. Maybe not Eliana. Eliana's going to be gone. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's part of See, yeah. this is me. This is me doing things that maybe the audience doesn't want. I'm complex. <laughs> see uh, maybe Eliana's not your favorite character but she's definitely complex so Eliana will be gone for just a little bit she's taking a little detour trip away from the podcast we'll give her some time off we'll allow it she has some PTO saved up uh, so while Eliana is out of town I will be doing a Patreon episode with Faye from Her Dark Materials and Amy and Ian from the Dark Material podcast. Really excited about that. We'll be covering Philip Pullman's The Secret Commonwealth, the second book of dust, talking about some general thoughts on that and our initial reactions while we wait for Eliana to come back to discuss LaBelle Sausage. I mean, Savage. The, the person who tried to paint an S over the V. <laughs> I was like... Me. I feel that. Um... Yes, and yeah, okay, I'm gonna be real. Uh, it it is my fault for not having been caught up on the books, but I am kind of jealous. I'm like, I want to hang out with Faye and Ian and Amy. <laughs> They're so cool. Well, you know what you have to do in order to do that. So not go on this trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing we'll be missing out on is Jamie Four. Jamie 4 will not be up on March 6th. We will put the Secret Commonwealth episode out for the public. 
our patrons are sharing this month, and we are so grateful for that. Thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Jamie 4 will come out on the 13th of March, and that is also when we will be announcing our giveaway winner for our Ice and Fire Con Girls Gone Canon Weekend Extravaganza. So stay tuned. More for that. Wish Eliana some uh, safe travels. Yes, and keep up with whenever those episodes come out, right? Like, I know it sounds like a slightly crazy schedule, but if you follow us on social media, you'll know when those all come out. Find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, over on Twitter. And hey, maybe you have some thoughts on this episode or things to expand on. You can find us at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Or maybe you want to send us cat pics. Or other animals. I'm. We love the animal pictures, so please send us your pets. Uh, as well as our social media, you can find us on our podcast platforms. We are hosted on Podbean. You can also check in on our RSS feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Acast and Stitcher. Yes. And... Thank you so much for tuning in this week, you guys. Thank you so much to Fangirl Jean for joining us this week. This was this was a treat. I was so excited to have Jean on, and I just thought that she was just going to be a great guest, and I think she really nailed it with a lot of the in-depth and different lenses, right, of looking at Jamie's character. And, you know, someone send us those pegging fanfics. Yes, please send us the pegging fanfics. Yeah, that's girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. As always, you guys, I've been Chloe, one of your hosts. And I've been Eliana, another one of your hosts. Are you even going to miss us? <laughs> Are you you're including this? Shoot, I was, I'm about to stop the recording and Chloe just slips that in. Of course I'm going to miss you. I said you. what I said. Oh, she's going to miss, miss us, you. you guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>